Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 161, to Chicago and back. Now, first, uh, apologies, this episode's going to sound a little different because I'm a little sick. I've got some kind of a respiratory infection I've been battling for a long time, and uh, that's why I've had to postpone recording, and of course, I just recorded the whole episode and found some weird audio errors, and so here we go again. But that's the life of a podcaster. Now, I want to thank our patrons. It's been an amazing month for Patreon, and really just thank you all so much. So, particular shout-out to Ivailo Viktorov, Jeff Brill, Sky O'Donnell, Vladimir Andreev, Petko Ivanov, Tamarin Jones-Francis, and Martin Friends. So, thank you all so much. Also, one last reminder, I'll be speaking at the Intelligent Speech Conference on June 25th. Uh, so that'll be an interesting talk about the Circassians and how they affect, kind of relate to this idea about crossings, crossing borders, crossing into kind of the modern era and things, working on a nice, interesting talk about that. And I'll be in a little roundtable called Occupied or A History of How We Learned to Love Russia. So that'll be a, a fun little kind of romp with myself and a few other history podcasters. So if you want to buy a ticket and join that, you can use my code Bulgaria and get 10% off. So please do that. And yeah, I hope some of you will join me there. Now, last time we saw yet more Russian assassinations slowly make Stambulov even more isolated, more paranoid, and more detached from the shifting political winds than ever before. Yet it was also a time of great success for him as Prince Ferdinand had finally found a bride and got married marking one big step towards the greater stability that Stambulov so desperately felt Bulgaria needed. Censorship laws had been lifted, and the press, though, was basically using that to savage Stambulov, even as his foreign policy brought gains in Macedonia and further steps towards the eventual recognition of Ferdinand as Bulgaria's legal sovereign. But before we get back into the, you know, back and forth of Bulgarian politics and things, I want to take about half this episode and step back to talk about the writer and lawyer Aleko Konstantinov's journey to Chicago for the Colombian exhibition celebrating 400 years since Columbus's voyage. Konstantinov writes about this in his famous book To Chicago and Back, and I finally got around to reading it and wanted to kind of share some of the more interesting bits with you so you can kind of get a little insight into the world of 1893, Bulgaria, travel at the time, how Bulgaria is viewed, all this stuff. So, Konstantinov begins his book by complaining about the difficulty of, inter of obtaining an international passport, which is a nod to the many difficulties Bulgarians are facing navigating the country's burgeoning bureaucracy in these early years. He then notes how boring it is to cross Serbia by rail, I don't think that's really changed much in my opinion, and the corruption he found when he entered the Austro-Hungarian Empire and reached Vienna. Next, he's off to Paris and then to the port of Le Havre, where he boarded an ocean liner brimming with immigrants from every corner of Europe and spent seven days crossing the Atlantic Ocean. He wrote about how Bulgaria's entire navy could fit in this single hulking ocean liner and marveled about how it was lit with electricity that could be turned off in his cabin with a simple twisting of a knob. And, as if that modernity wasn't enough, he also described meeting an aeronaut, a man who made his living by going up in balloons. 
Konstantinov describes New York the way most immigrants there do. It's overwhelming with boats, trains, smokestacks, and activity all making a concentrated assault on the senses. Quite a change from Sofia where, as Prince Ferdinand recently reminded us, everyone's basically asleep by 10 p.m. Now, I'm going to quote Konstantinov's first interaction with the U.S. upon arrival because, well, it's too good not to share. He writes, quote, when, when my turn came up to approach the agent, he asked my name. When he heard a last name ending in off, he muttered, Are you Russian? No, I'm Bulgarian. Huh? I'm a Bulgarian from Bulgaria? What? Bulgarian, I shouted more emphatically as the thoughtlessness of the American began to anger me. Bulgarian. Hungary, he corrected me. What do you mean Hungary? Bulgaria on the Balkan Peninsula? I was seized by both anger and a desire to laugh when I saw how he was straining his memory to remember where this kingdom really was. Could it be true? Every day our newspapers cite amazing reports from the foreign press about advances in our homeland and the ignoramus had never even heard the name Bulgaria. I thought maybe I wasn't pronouncing the name of our country properly the way they do, so I took out a map of Europe, opened it for him, and stuck my finger on Sofia. Oh yes, Turkey, all right. No, sir, I protested, but he didn't want to hear. He listed me as a Turk. In the same way, he made the other two Bulgarians traveling with Konstantinov Turks. The latter was disappointed and took a dislike to Americans, saying, quote, A strange thing, he repeated, not even to know where Bulgaria is. They are hopeless, the poor numbskulls. That's the end of that whole section. So, you know, I can make a, a formal apology on behalf of the United States to Mr. Konstantinov and his companions for that incident. But uh, yeah, it's, I think this is fairly indicative of a lot of immigrants coming to the U.S. from lesser-known places. Now, one question you might have when one traveled in those days is, well, how, did they travel with a bunch of money in their pockets? Like, how did people like Konstantinov pay for things? Well, Konstantinov actually purchased coupons in Vienna, which were worth about $3 or 15 leva each. And each one entitled him to one day's worth of food and lodging at a list of participating hotels. So it's kind of a voucher system. Konstantinov quickly found himself at a participating hotel and was in awe, particularly when he unexpectedly found himself riding in this thing called an elevator. Soon, Konstantinov was absolutely aghast at American cuisine and the way it was eaten, noting the abundance and variety just didn't make up for its blandness and that somehow no one in the hotel's vast dining hall seemed to be drinking beer or wine, let alone smoking or even talking. Once he's on the street, though, he was quite amused to find the Yankees smoking, spitting, and reading newspapers, as he put it, like a real shoppy. But for those who don't know, the Bulgarians who live in the wider Sofia region are called shoppy, and, well, they don't always have the best reputation in Bulgaria, although I've clearly got my own biases as I'm married to one. Anyways, eventually Konstantinov and his Bulgarian compatriots found themselves in a bar being served by a Bavarian and chatting it up with a Serb. They got to the topic of U.S. politics, and the Serb, who had lived in the U.S. for over 14 years, offered to trade newly elected U.S. President Grover Cleveland for Stefan Stambulov. Konstantinov notes his admiration for U.S. freedoms, to which the Serb replied, quote, There's more corruption here than anywhere else. In Europe, where you come from, people are emperors. Here, gold is emperor. He who has the most gold has the most power. 
Money is king, as we say at home. Before explaining that, with gold, you can buy the president himself. End quote. It's a nice reminder that this was the so-called Gilded Age in the United States, a time of tremendous wealth inequality and political corruption. But anyways, Konstantinov then explored more of New York and took a train up to Niagara Falls, which he was completely in love with, and then progressed to Detroit and on to Chicago. There, he encountered the massive Columbian Exhibition. He notes that the entire Plovdiv Exhibition, along with that city's inhabitants and probably all their belongings, could fit in the Palace of Manufacturing alone. Once they found Bulgaria's booth at the exhibition, they saw that it came equipped with adder of rose, cloth from Vratza, wine, and rakia, all displayed alongside traditional carpets and clothing. The man running the booth was a Mr. Shopov, evidently spent most of his time just trying to teach Bulgaria, Americans rather, where Bulgaria even was. Funnily enough, an American businessman actually thought the Vratza cloth would make great drapes, you know, for windows, and asked whether he could purchase two to three thousand meters, but Evidently, all the Bulgarians in the room were stumped as to whether or not Vratza could even produce that much identical cloth, and they speculated that maybe the nuns of some the Samokov or Kolofor monasteries could do it, which just kind of cracks me up. So, there were other booths selling Bulgarian items, although much of the goods the proprietor was trying to sell were actually just stuck in customs. Apparently, a Jewish man from Ruse arrived to sell postage stamps, but saw just how bad business was for his fellow countrymen, and just immediately turned around and went back to Bulgaria, which seems kind of crazy. It's a, it's a long journey to just turn around like that, but there you go. Now, the crew moved on to the restaurant of the large Turkish pavilion, where they met a merchant from Turnovo, as well as a young man from Samakov who was working and studying in Philadelphia. And this young man was actually worrying whether or not an American degree would actually be recognized in Bulgaria, which seems a bit funny. Now, Konstantinov was amazed by the fruits and vegetables on display in the California pavilion, which really shook his internal belief, the strong belief that Bulgarian produce was just unrivaled in the world. He wrote, quote, No, the Custondil region cannot compare with California in fruit, end quote. However, he did find that American grapes were subpar, although make good wine, and he lamented at what the vintners of the United States could do with Bulgarian grapes. Now, Konstantinov also felt that Native American women were quite like shop women, women in their faces, the way they sang, and even how they styled their hair. He wrote, quote, Their household belongings, rugs, towels, embroideries, and shirts could have been stolen from our peasants, end quote. And he even speculated that this is why the Bulgarians at their booth were having such trouble selling their wares, because, well, the Americans had seen similar things before. And this is kind of true, actually. If you look at the, the kind of traditional patterns on Bulgarian kilims, uh, that is kind of traditional carpets, they're quite similar to what you can find in Native American tribes of the American Southwest. Now, Konstantinov was just flat out embarrassed by the Greek pavilion, which had nothing more than some olives, salt, and wine. And he wrote, quote, a great work. Why couldn't they be satisfied with the fascination of the, of the Greek, Greece of uh, Plato, Aristotle, Sophocles, and Aristophanes, Themistocles, and Aristides, which lives well among the American people? Why couldn't they just keep quiet, mind their own poverty? No, they want to show the world how much they've advanced. Well, now the world has seen it, a sack of olives, end quote. 
That's just a, a funny observation of the, the Greeks of this time. Now, in general, Konstantinov was rather horrified by the effects of industrialization on the United States, by the soot and ash which covered everything, by the great stench and brutality of the famous slaughterhouses of Chicago. And overall, he just lamented what gold could make men do. And from there, he traveled to my hometown of Washington, D.C., where he marveled that anyone could enter the White House or Capitol building, and he did both. Now, if my memory serves, this is only maybe a decade or two from the time where threats of assassination and violence will put an end to those practices, so glad he got to enjoy it. Still, I'm proud to report that Constantino found Washington to be, quote, if not the prettiest, at least one of the prettiest cities which I saw in Europe and America, end quote. Going on to add, quote, Praise God there are no factories, no smoke, no suffocating atmosphere. This is the capital, a bureaucratic city, end quote. So I'm glad he appreciated my dear hometown and its kind of unique architecture and style compared to other American cities. Now from there, Philadelphia made a rather good impression, with Konstantinov being particularly amazed by the silver bars stored in the city treasury. Remarking, quote, Yes, 50 or 60 million dollars worth of ingots lie here unused. The people don't need money. They leave the silver like that, in ingots. They don't strike it into coins. My God, what patriotism these ingots would inspire at home, end quote. Finally, the three Bulgarian travelers made their way to Boston to see that famous city before recrossing the Atlantic. They were surprised that the Boston Public Library actually had some Bulgarian books, like the 1872 play Ivanko the Murderer of Asen I by Vasil Drumev. Overall, though, Konstantinov was impressed by how well Americans dressed, how prosperous they were, while he lamented the corrupting power that capitalism seemed to have over them. He felt the food was horrendous, but was impressed by how comparatively difficult it was to differentiate class compared to Europe, which is still a bit true today. The book goes on to describe the journey back to Europe, his love of Paris and other cities, and a rather dreary time in London, but I think I've covered the bits that will be most interesting to you, dear listener. So, with that little dive into how Bulgaria was portrayed to the outside world in 1893 and how one young Bulgarian man experienced it, let's get back to the narrative. Now, Following Ferdinand's marriage, the couple took a yacht tour around the Mediterranean as a honeymoon before arriving back in Sofia to a grand welcome, complete with many triumphal arches and a procession in a gilded carriage. Just two months after the wedding, Ferdinand informed Stambolov that Marie-Louise was pregnant. All seemed to be going perfectly for the Prime Minister. However, last time we also discussed how some of the cracks were beginning to show in his regime. Well, that only continued into the spring of 1893. Still, Stamlov was exerting power. In April of that year, his party won the majority of seats in the Grand National Assembly elections. Remember, that's not for the parliament, that's for this special parliament designed to change the constitution. Now, I already mentioned how Stamlov successfully changed the constitution to allow the heirs to not be orthodox, but I left out what other things he did at the same time. After all, Electing a Grand National Assembly to change the Constitution is hard work, so there's no sense in letting it all go to waste on a single change. So, what did Stambolov do? First, he pushed through a change to Article 86, extending the term of National Assembly members from three to five years. So, elections would be every five years. In practice, this would give Stambolov another two years of control before he would have to face the electorate again. 
He also changed Article 114 such that only one-third of deputies would need to vote for a measure to make it law instead of half. Now, this is a bold move because it meant that it would be easier for Stambolov to pass laws and exert control, but also easier for other parties to potentially oppose him in the future. But frankly, I'm kind of baffled by how that works. Like, how do you pass laws with one-third support? Because by definition, couldn't the other two-thirds simply try to pass different laws? I don't know. Despite my degree in political science and many courses of comparative government, I've never heard of such a system, and the sources I have don't go into details on how it was supposed to work in practice. But anyways, the final major change was allowing the National Assembly to vote via secret ballot, so individual members couldn't be held accountable for their votes. Again, this was designed to provide political cover and strengthen Stumbleoff's hold on power. There were also some other changes, like adding two cabinet ministers and slightly changing Ferdinand's title and his ability to give out medals. In general, though, the change allowing the heirs to not be orthodox meant that, well, Perry notes that this kind of made it so Stambolov was now, in addition to be called a, being called a tyrant, he was called a heretic. But although he was once again successful in getting everything he wanted, a wife for Ferdinand, the foundation of a dynasty, all these things also strengthened Prince Ferdinand and enabled him to increase his opposition to Stambolov. Crampton's amusing commentary on this was that Ferdinand, quote, secured the prize, but Stambolov had paid for the ticket. End quote. Indeed, Ferdinand's new wife hated Stumbleoff from the moment she met him. This combined with the kind of low-level conflict that had been brewing between the monarch and his erstwhile ally for years meant that Ferdinand was finally ready to basically try to figure out how he could get rid of Stumbleoff. And yet, when Stumbleoff offered to resign immediately after mounting those successful constitutional changes, Ferdinand turned him down, the fifth time he had done so. Okay, so, so what gives? Why would Ferdinand keep rejecting Stumbleoff's attempts to resign when he wants him gone? In short, while Ferdinand did at this point want to replace Stumbleoff, he knew that Stumbleoff still had the political power to potentially win the next election anyways, and that would have given him a brand new mandate and thus increased his power, something Ferdinand had to avoid at all costs. In addition, Ferdinand's new wife was experiencing some health problems, and the couple had to go abroad to receive treatment. That meant that Ferdinand needed the stability of Stumbleoff while he was away. In July, new elections were scheduled, in which Stumbleoff decided to test his own popularity by not interfering in them to the usual extent. However, Stumbleoff's reputation did much the work his thugs would normally perform, and a combination of fear and apathy translated into extremely low voter turnout of just 19%, and another victory for Stambolov's party. But this was really despite the fact that opposition was really coalescing. In June, an opposition coalition was formed against Stambolov, joining the conservatives, liberals, and the South Bulgarian unionists. It was called the United Legal Opposition, and within a few months, it was also joined by Dragan Tsankov's liberal group. So why didn't this coalition do better in the July elections? It's easy to forget that although it was made up of several parties, each of those parties was pretty tiny, and opposition to Stambolov was still more of an elite phenomenon rather than a mass phenomenon. But despite this, the peasantry, they were starting to get tired of Stefan Stambolov by this point. And he knew all of this. 
That enormous network of spies and informants made sure that the prime minister was well aware of how the mood was shifting. In September, he got wind of a rumor that Ferdinand wished to get him out of government and actually even deport him from the country. Stumbleoff returned to his old tactics, visiting the prince with an undated and signed letter of resignation. He said, quote, Your Highness has not learnt in seven years to know me if you think I could be forced into signing anything. You might cut off my hands and feet, but you could never compel me to do what I now do voluntarily and of my own free will. Here is my resignation, signed and undated. Take it, keep it with you, and if you think it will help you. From this moment, I am no longer your minister, and I warn you, sire, that if you treat your new one as you have treated me, your throne is not worth a louis, end quote. A louis is a coin, basically, like a dollar or something. Once again, despite Ferdinand growing up in the deep, murky, and tumultuous political waters of Vienna, Stambluff outplayed him. The prince was embarrassed and refused the resignation. But again, although Stambluff kept winning, it kept costing him. A friend of Stambluff's wrote that he was, quote, no longer the jolly, confident, wild, wild, popular tribune of early days. He had become more worried and more brooding. I noticed this on our travels. In the past, the question that everyone asked was, where is Stefan? Long live Stefan. And Stefan Stambluff, well, He would just get out of his carriage, beaming, good-humored, and cry out to the crowd, There's the prince! Now, faces are downcast and only those in uniform cheer. His officials are scoundrels. His prefects are cattle thieves, who long ago ought to have been hanged or chained to the galleys. How often have I told the minister, You are destroying your own handiwork. It doesn't help. I have the impression that Stambloff will soon be out of office. End quote. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode. Opposition to Stambloff has united, but he continues to win elections and outmaneuver Ferdinand. But that opposition's not giving up. Both political figures and the throne itself are soon going to make their moves. Ferdinand's about to have a child, which will also further and kind of strengthen his hand. In late November of 1893, the 7th National Assembly convenes and Stambloff's party is still in control. But now, everyone's watching and wondering how long it will last. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the link below for more information about this episode, and I will see you in the next one.